If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Wins and Losses with Clay Travis. Clay talks with the most entertaining people in sports, entertainment, and business. Now, here's Clay Travis. Welcome in to Outkick the Coverage, the Wins and Losses podcast, where we can have some long-form conversations with a variety of different figures that I find to be interesting in the world of sports, business, politics, media, you name it. We've had a lot of awesome ones. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them. And this week's guest is Ben Shapiro, at Ben Shapiro on Twitter. He's got a new book coming out, which I'm about halfway through, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. I also... Uh, read his most uh, recent book, I believe, which was uh, which one? The Right Side of History: How Reason and Moral Purpose Made the West Great. Super interesting and entertaining books. Ben obviously has a wildly successful show and podcast as a part of the Daily Wire team. Ben, thanks for the time. Uh, I imagine releasing a book in this day and age is uh, is, is a little bit wacky, even though you've released several before. Uh, this is a different kind of vibe, right? Oh, it's definitely weird. Um, and I, I will admit that when I first wrote the book, I thought it would be relevant prior to the election. And then COVID hit, and I thought this is going to be wildly irrelevant before the election. And then the entire world went up in flames, and it turns out it's relevant again. So sometimes you just hit the news cycle <laughs> properly. All right. I, I want to dive into sports with you because I've been on your show before talking about sports. And I know you're a pretty big sports fan, and we talk uh, as, as a jumping off point to a lot of different people with sports as uh, sort of the connective tissue or fabric. So let's start here. You grew up a fan of which teams in which part of the country when you were a kid? So I grew up in L.A., and I'm a Chicago White Sox fan primarily. Uh, and then in terms of secondary sports for me, I'm um, Boston Celtics fan and, uh, and a Chicago Bears fan. So I picked up all my dad's allegiances is really the short story there. My dad's from Chicago. When he was growing up, there really wasn't a Chicago basketball team. He went to college in Boston. Uh, and because he did that, he became a Celtics fan. So. I, was a, I grew up a Celtics fan in L.A., which you know, went well for me during my childhood. It was really great. <laughs> 
So uh, how big of a sports fan were you? I mean, obviously you went on to law school like I did, and, uh, and many people go on to more serious things in life. Sports is kind of always the toy chest of life. But when you were a kid growing up, were you a, hey, in the morning I'm going to put on Sports Center, see who won the night before, watch the highlights while I eat breakfast before I go to school? Uh, how, how committed would you say you were to uh, the teams you grew up rooting for? Oh yeah, I was. I was. You know, I'm gonna run out to the. the I'm gonna run out to the curb. I'm gonna grab the box scores. I'm gonna come back in. I wake up at 6 a.m. to watch the early sports center. Uh, yep. So yeah, I mean, I was. I was a sports nut, uh, and particularly baseball. My my dad and I actually co-wrote a book about the about the Chicago White Sox 2005 World Series season. So a uh, huge, huge sports fan. I mean, yesterday I was watching. I'm, I'm so desperate for content at this point. I was watching the preseason Sox and, and Cubs game in an empty stadium, watching backup relievers get raked. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I remain a, a very large. I made a very large sports fan. Did you play growing up? Uh, yeah, but I'm a, I'm a five nine Jew now, so you know, I was never. I was, I was a, <laughs> I, I, I was, I'm a good contact hitter. So I was. Well, I was going to ask. I, 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 I think feel like every kid and it, basically everybody who's listening to us, with a few exceptions, who actually ended up being professional athletes, uh, but you have this sort of uh, harsh realization for all kids at some age. And for some of us, it comes a lot younger than others. For uh, a lot of them, you know, it, it comes in high school, whenever it might be. Do you remember the age you were when you suddenly realized, hey, wait a minute, I'm not going to end up being a Major League Baseball player? Yeah, I think I was probably 13, and, uh, yeah. and it was pretty devastating. I mean, I, yeah. I played in Little League, and I was I was pretty good. I mean, I, I played second base, and I, I was uh, – I could switch hit, and I, w- I was able to go to the cages and hit 80 miles an hour, but it wasn't like I had any sort of power. And my arm wasn't strong enough for me to make the third base throw, you know, really on a line. And so at that point, I was like, okay, you know what, this point's pretty much done, so I'm going to go to the traditional Jewish pastimes of, uh, of violin and, uh, and <laughs> lawyering. So that's, that's where it was. I've been a violinist since I was five anyway, and it was like, okay, I can let these ground balls rack up my hands, or I can continue to play violin like a good Jewish kid. When did, uh, when did you, where did you go to college? I went to UCLA for college, and then I went to Harvard for law school. Yeah, so, okay, so when you were at UCLA for college, so uh, I went back recently and found the very first thing that I had ever had published under my name, uh, and, and I didn't find it, actually. One of my listeners did, but I told the story. I was 18 years old. I was a freshman in college at George Washington, um, and there was a front-page article because there was a protest over an executive uh, I guess it was a, a somebody, a vice president or something of the school who had used the phrase rule of thumb. And somebody was offended about the use of the phrase rule of thumb. And so I wrote in talking about how ridiculous it was. And I went back and I read that letter to the editor, to the student newspaper. And it was kind of amazing to see at, you know, I'm 41 now, but 20 plus years ago, I was fighting the same battles that I feel like I'm fighting now for people out there who are like, oh, you've changed literally uh, other than maybe using a few bigger words when I was 18 because I was trying to show off my vocabulary. I really am not very much different in the way that I would think about the First Amendment and many other different issues than I would have when I was 18. That's not to say that I have perfect uh, you know, opinions or anything else. It's just there's a consistency there. For you, when you went away to college at 18, had you developed your own political philosophy at that point, or was it still evolving? I mean, I think it was, it was still evolving a little bit. It was fairly well-developed. I mean, I, I went to college when I was 16, so yeah. I, I started UCLA when I was 16, and I was living at home. And my first piece that I wrote was 
uh, about Israel because I'd walked on campus and the first thing I saw was a piece in the student newspaper that compared Israel's then Prime Minister Ariel Sharon with Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi. Uh, yes. And I thought, well, this doesn't sound right. So I, <laughs> so I walked into the Daily Brun offices and I wrote a counterpiece. Uh, and then a few weeks later, I was walking through and I was the only person who's relatively conservative they'd ever heard of. So as I was walking through the offices, they were like, oh, yeah, we've got this piece that somebody's writing about how sanctions on Saddam Hussein are bad. Do you want to write the counterpoint? And so it turned into sort of a point-counterpoint thing. And then I turned it into a normal column for the UCLA paper. Um, but, yeah, I mean, my, my politics was, I would say, you know, I was only 16, so it was, it was somewhat well-developed. It got more well-developed as time went on. But I had a syndicated column when I was 17, and I had my first book published at 20. So uh, I, I, I'll say that I was more of a dick when I was, like, 17. But I'm, I'm not sure who was it when they were 17. <laughs> So what was the reaction when you're this 16-year-old kid writing in the Daily Bruin newspaper? I mean, that had to be uh, pretty – I mean, I I would imagine pretty uh, impressive to your parents, but also to you it had to be pretty cool to be able to start to influence perceptions, even if it's on a local student newspaper at that time. Yeah, it's pretty neat. I mean, I I, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. It became one of the most widely read columns on the paper because it was the only thing that wasn't sort of repeating party line. Uh, and then when I was 17, I turned to my dad, and I'd been writing for the Daily Bruin for maybe a year and a half. And, uh, and I said, do you think that my stuff is good enough to be published in, like, a normal paper? And he had been reading, I think it was Mona Charon, who was syndicated by Creator Syndicate. And he said, let me, uh, let me see if they take submissions. So I just submitted my stuff cold to Creator Syndicate. And they came back three weeks later and offered me a weekly column. Uh, and they didn't know how old I was. They, they knew I was young. They didn't know I was 17. So my parents actually had to sign the contract. That's um, amazing. Eighteen to sign a contract in, in California, so uh, I actually started writing when I was eighteen for for the uh, for the syndicate, and, and that meant that it was going out to ten, twelve papers. Now it's probably I've been writing every week since I was eighteen for them. Yeah. So that means it's now been eighteen years, <laughs> and that means that I've written you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of columns. It, the, the column is it's still going. It's still printed in probably a uh, hundred papers across the country at this point. Did you ever practice law? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, so I went to I went to law school, and then yeah. I and then I right out of law school, you got these big debts, and and I thought, okay, I'll, I think I'll go into real estate law, learn real estate, and then make a bundle that way. So I joined up with a firm called Goodwin Proctor uh, in Los Angeles, which is a big Boston-based firm. Um, and uh, I, I will say, I had the worst interview record of anyone in the history of Harvard Law School. I think so. I interviewed at thirty-two separate firms. I got one offer. And what do you attribute? Well, let me let me st- yeah. What do you attribute that to? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was pretty obvious what it was about. It was, it was about the fact that on my resume, I had the title of my book. So I had, I, my, my first book was called Brainwash, How Liberal Bias Indoctrinates College Students, or something like that. Uh, and uh, my second book was about social liberalism and how it was bad. And so those were on, and those are published by mainstream houses, right? But I put those on my resume. And so the interviews would go, I can give you a couple of great kind of law school interview stories. So uh, and the way it works at Harvard is, you don't go to the firm to interview. They come to interview you because you're a yeah. Harvard Law student. So they well, Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt Law School does the same thing. They have like these little bunker rooms. I don't know what it's like at Harvard, but they have the on-campus interviews and you know, you walk in and you interview and everything else. So, uh, so yeah, I went through right, the exactly. same sort of okay. process. Yeah, Exactly. So at Harvard, they do it at the Charles Hotel and they have these really you know, beautifully apportioned rooms and you go in and people interview you. So I remember uh, one time I was interviewing at Gibson Dunn and the partner is sitting in the room before I even sit down. The, the partner says, it's always been my, and like, it's pretty obvious I'm religious, right? I mean, I wear a yarmulke yeah. publicly and all this. Before I even sit down, he says, it's always been my contention that conservatives and religious people in general have a Freudian fear of sex. <laughs> it's like before I sit down for the interview. And I was like, okay, well, I'm clearly not getting this job. So I just, <laughs> so I just eviscerated him. So I would say half my interviews sort of weren't like that. 
And then I went back to the Harvard Law School Office of Career Services. I was like, what's the deal? Like, I, I graduated cum loud from your, your university. I have several published books at this point. I'm like, well, what's happening? And they said, just take your books off your resume. I took my books off my resume. I got two interviews the next week. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, so how long, so, so I practiced full time for about two years and I was like, this is not for me. And I understand there's a lot you of lawyers me, who was, yeah. I mean, so how long did you actually last? Oh, I lasted 10 months. I, yeah. <laughs> I was working, I was working in real estate law for 10 months and then I was so miserable. I just gotten engaged. I just bought a condo and right before we're set to get married, I turned to my wife and I said, I'm miserable. This is the worst job in the entire world. I'd also entered the real estate division at Goodwin Proctor in September of 2007. There is no work. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough timing. Real yeah. estate. Then September 2007. So I start working there and I'm literally sitting in this gorgeous office overlooking you know, Santa Monica and you can see all the way out to the ocean. And I'm sitting there for like 10 hours a day doing nothing. And then being yelled at by the partner for not billing hours. And, and I, like, I remember I came out of the bathroom one time and the partner's standing right there. He's like, why aren't you billing hours? Like, because you don't give me any work. He's like, well, go rain make. I'm like, what the <laughs> first year associate, what are you even talking about? I do doc review, right? Like, what are you, what are you saying? So after 10 months of this nonsense, I quit. Uh, and I will, th- this is actually pretty funny. I, I sat down with a couple of the senior associates and one of them was trying to convince me not to quit. And the other one had played college baseball, I think at UVA. And he, and he's sitting there trying to convince me not to quit. And I'm giving all my reasons why I want to quit. I'm miserable. I hate this. I think it's a stupid job. And about halfway through him trying to convince me not to quit, he turns to the other senior associate and he goes, maybe I should quit. <laughs> and it turns into the other senior associate <laughs> trying to explain to him why, even though he's miserable, he shouldn't quit. And then I went into the, the partner, told him that I wanted to quit. And the partner's first response was, you understand that you'll never make as money. You'll, you'll never make as much money in whatever else you do the rest of your life as you're making right now. And I said, okay, then I guess I won't make as much money. Um, and, uh, ever and by the way, really to, to, I don't know what your starting salary was, but let's presume you're making around $200,000. I bet yeah, you have, right. uh, I've done a little bit better than that. Oh, dude. I mean, I, I've been wanting for years to send my tax returns to this guy. Um, but he, <laughs> but it, it's, uh, it, so I, I quit there. Uh, I was out of work for maybe three months. I've been ghostwriting for some people, um, but I, I was out of work for a little while. I had a little bit of savings for my books. Um, and, uh, and then I latched on as the in-house attorney at Talk Radio Network, which was a syndicator for Laura Ingram and Michael Savage at the time. Um, and I worked there. I was doing law, but uh, the deal was I got paid literally a third of what I'd been making, um, which was significantly less than six figures. Um, and um, my deal was I will do law for half the day. And for half the day, I want to learn the production side of the business. So I'd sit there and I'd cut audio. I'd literally get up at, at five o'clock in the morning. I would highlight pieces for the various hosts that they had their show prep ready. And I would cut the pieces of audio that I thought were relevant for the day. Um, and so I was, you know, doing halftime, like low level production and halftime uh, and halftime law. And after three years, I was executive vice president of the company. Uh, and um, I looked at the, uh, I, I sort of looked at the direction of the company and I was like, I think I'm done here. Uh, and I quit. And, um, and then I yeah, moved on to a succession of other jobs. I started working at, at Andrew Breitbart's outlet and then, uh, I started a uh, uh, website called Truth Revolt, uh, and then after that went to Funk, I started Daily Wire. Daily Wire is where, yeah, obviously, everything has happened over, over there right now. All right, so I want to circle back around here for a second, because one of the things we talk about on wins and losses is being willing to take risk and to, uh, and to latch on to opportunity, even if other people think you're crazy. You can imagine, because we have somewhat similar backgrounds, I stopped practicing law after a couple of years. You're making good money. 
and a lot of people look at you like you are crazy. That partner who told you you'd never make the salary that you were making then uh, is emblematic of it. But I'm curious, you mentioned your wife. How uh, how important was it for her to support your decision? Do you remember other people who also said, hey, I believe in you, Ben, even if you're taking a non-traditional career path? Yes, my wife was super supportive. She was the one who actually told me to quit. So I, I was yeah. kind of like implying that I wanted to quit. And she said, listen, if you're, this, if you're this miserable, you should just quit. Like you got a Harvard Law degree. You're a smart guy. You got a lot of contacts. You'll get another job. Don't worry about it. Um, and so I quit a month before we were married having just taken on a mortgage and with, you know, a little savings, but not much. Yeah. Uh, and she's been like that my whole career. Like, if you got to make the move, make the move. So I've been, you know, I've been very risk-seeking my entire career. Um, my, I also figured, listen, I'm young. I can afford the risk. We didn't have kids at that point. Um, but I, I always figured that if you bank on your own talent and it's, a, and it's an area where you actually know what you're doing, then you'll do pretty well. Um, my, my parents have always been incredibly supportive as far as me being risk-taking as well. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't come from tons of money, but, you know, my parents are probably... Yeah, probably upper middle class. I think it's fair to say. I, when I was growing up, we were kind of lower middle class and middle class. Like I grew up in a two bedroom house in Burbank with three sisters. All of us shared one room. We had one bathroom. Um, but by the time I was by the time I was in college, we were probably somewhere between middle class and upper middle class. So it wasn't like I was coming from a place where if things went wildly wrong. You know, I was going to be thrown into massive amounts of debt. So I, I was lucky that way for sure. Also, uh, I, I would say this though, I, I'm middle class as well. The dollars don't impress you as much. Like the first job that I ever had, I made more money as a lawyer my first year than my parents had ever made, right? Yep. Uh, my That's mom right. or my That's dad. Right. And so it was like, oh, wow. Like I, when you haven't ever gotten used to having extreme amounts of money, we talked about this recently and we do on the show sometimes about the idea of golden handcuffs. And a lot of young lawyers find themselves in golden handcuffs because you're making more than maybe your parents ever made at the age of 25, 26 years old, whatever it is. But at the same time, you're recognizing that you're not necessarily able to embrace your full talents. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's really what it was. It was it was early on. The only thing I really had to pay for is I had paid for a car, but I just basically bought it. It was a, a used Mustang GT convertible, 2006, baby blue. It was, <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was it was it was my car until uh, until I got married. At which point, it turned into a Honda Accord, as all of our cars do. Uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I, I never I, I had a basic philosophy about money making, which is never spend a dollar that you don't have. Uh, and so I never I never got into debt. I was I was always very careful about a dollar. And and but. I will say that when I said to my parents, my mom particularly, that I wanted to quit the law firm, she was a little bit perturbed because not not like angry or anything, but like, are you sure about that? Because she'd been spending her entire career, you know, to get to the point where I was making that money first year work coming out of coming out of law school, and um, you know, obviously it ended up being the right decision. But it wasn't like she took like a hard and fast. This is the wrong move. Thing. She just. She, my mom tends to be a much more risk averse person than I am. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about risk. Uh, you end up with the Daily Wire, and I believe you guys are five years in, wildly successful website. Um, somewhat similarly, we started Outkick, and I had bounced around to other places, whether it was Deadspin before they had gone full on loony left. Uh, I'd been to Fan House. Uh, I had been writing at CBS Sports. I felt like I understood the business model better than most who were in my position. What about you? What did you learn at the other places you wrote at and worked for before you ended up at Daily Wire? And how important was that to you in being able to build the success of your current company? So there are a few sort of specific skill sets I learned. So one was, um, you know, I, I'd always 
written a lot, but story selection was a huge one. So when I was an editor at Breitbart, I had kind of learned story selection. Over, after about a year and a half, I, I really wasn't in the editorial chain anymore, but I had learned to write really good headlines. And that obviously came in very handy when I was, uh, when I was running my own website. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, I learned also that you don't want to, you don't want to staff beyond your capacity to support. So you, you really want to grow slowly. You know, you want to grow to your, grow to your audience. Um, and that means, I think a big mistake that a lot of people make is when they do take a risk, they take a huge risk. So it's like, yeah. okay, I'm, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to hire 25 people. We're going to go full bore. We're going to blow the entire chunk of change right out the gate. And that was something that I, I really learned not to do very early, which was, uh, you know, we're, we're going to we'll hire a couple writers. We're going to try out everybody. Everybody's got to spend a week writing for us. We'll pay them for their time, but we're going to see if they actually can run through the paces. Uh, and, uh, and that was a policy I started when I was at Breitbart, but then we carried on when I, was, when I moved beyond Breitbart. Um, the, the, the sort of real key, actually, was something that occurred to both me and my business partner, Jeremy Boring, uh, and that was marketing. Uh, and that was something that I think we mostly learned when we were running Truth Revolt for, uh, for David Horowitz Freedom Center, which was sort of the anti-media matters of the right. Uh, and what we, what we really learned is that we had become largely dependent for our traffic on other websites linking us. And so at one point I turned to Jeremy and I said what has probably since become our, our company's business model, which is luck is not a business model. Yeah. Um, you, know, you, you can't rely on other people to help you out. You really have to have a plan for how you are going to maximize your own business. And what that really means is you have to focus to an extraordinary extent on marketing. Uh, because the, most people tend to think that content is king. Well, content is, is kind of king and kind of not. So you can write a great book, and if nobody knows it's out there, it will sell two copies. And you can write a pile of horse crap, and if you put it between two covers and you have a lot of people covering it, it will sell a lot of copies, which is how you end up with you know, Charles Barkley being questioned about a book he didn't read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, misquoted in his own autobiography. Uh, I want to unpack a little bit of that because it's so fascinating. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and... 
and a challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Wins and Losses. I'm Clay Travis. He's Ben Shapiro. One of the things that I learned was uh, there's a great quote uh, that's out there from, I believe it's Michael Bay, and they said, like, how do you know what the needle is? Uh, how do you move the needle? And he said, which is one of the cockiest quotes of all time, I am the needle. And there's obviously two <laughs> ways to look at that. Either you can make people you know, adjust to whatever you believe is important or you have such a finely tuned calibration for what people are going to respond to that you know how to address their issues. And so I always like to say, I'm a data guy. I like to go look at what people actually click on as opposed to what they claim that they are going to click on. Uh, And I bet you are as well, just based on the answer you gave. What surprised you that worked early on in your writing career on the internet that if you didn't actually look at the numbers or the click-through rates or the data might have been counterintuitive? So uh, I think that everybody focuses on the writing and not the headlines. is a huge mistake. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, it's, so, you know, uh, you, like I would write a really great piece, and if it had a crappy headline, it gets no traffic. I remember I was doing a, a panel at one of these big tech events, and I was sitting on a panel with one of the heads of Axios, which is, of course, another big news website. And they were complaining that they didn't get the kind of social media traffic that we did because we get an enormous social media kind of response to our stuff. And they were, I was saying, well, can you read me like your last three headlines? And the person, you know, I looked up their headlines. And I said, well, you need to write better headlines. Like, it's not my fault <laughs> you're writing crappy headlines. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, the New York Times doesn't have great web traffic organically because their headlines suck. All their headlines are, you know, as the world turns, blacks and Hispanics at hardest. And it's like, well, uh, how about you just lead with the news? How about that? Like, yeah. if, you want, if you want to make a hardcore claim, then make the hardcore claim right up front. Like, they're, I'm not even making a claim about their content. I'm just saying the way they phrase their content is oblique. Like, don't do that. People want direct. People want to hear what, what we call uh, the, the word in Hebrew is the taklas. They want to hear just the bottom line. They don't, want to, they don't want to be jerked around. And so the more out front you are with your titles, the, the better it's going to do. Uh, the other thing is that people don't, I mean, it's, it's a, a sad truth of the world, but people don't actually want good news. So everybody will tell you they want good news, but nobody wants good news. Yep. So if you, if you cover, I mean, it, it's, it's a truism that everybody in the media knows, but they won't tell anybody in the audience. So they don't have to be like, well, you know, I wish that the news were just filled with more stories about good things that are happening. Bull crap. You want your own click on it. That doesn't, it doesn't activate your amygdala. So let's just be real about this. You don't want that stuff. <laughs> like, what you actually want is the stuff that freaks you out, right? Which is why on COVID, there's very little news about, you know, the fact that death rate has gone down and the fact that hospitals are treating this thing significantly better than they were before. The fact that the caseload is rising, but the hospitals are not overwhelmed. Like, all of that is more accurate than what you're generally seeing as the narrative. But that's not what you want to click on. What you want to click on is hospitals about to be overwhelmed, stay in your home, we're all going to die, because that activates certain core parts of your brain. So if you want traffic, you know, then, then that's where you go. Now, obviously, you've got to be honest about how you cover stuff. Um, but it is, it is just a, a fact of human nature. And people who are, I think, unscrupulous can certainly play on that. It's one of the reasons why 
for years and years and years. The, the going, you know, the going polling has shown that people were worried about vast increases in crime, despite the fact that we we're in the middle of a 30 year crime drop in the United States right. up until the last couple of years. No, it's 100 percent true. And, and I've labeled all the coronavirus coverage fear porn because that is oftentimes what motivate. And the analogy I use, you'll probably appreciate this, is one day, although this is a little bit different for our audience, but uh, one day we had a cancer patient announcing an NFL draft pick. Uh, St. Jude, which does incredible work in Memphis and around the country, uh, they had a cancer patient who was going to be announcing an NFL draft pick. They gave that story to me to write and I put it out on Twitter as an outkick story. And I watch the traffic because you can sit in front of your Google Analytics or whatever internal analytics you have and see people react to whatever is out there circulating. And, you know, we saw a little bit of a blip, but a lot more people said, oh, this is awesome, than actually came to read about it. That same day, Aaron Murray, who was then the quarterback of the Georgia Bulldogs, had a brand new girlfriend. And I was like, I put out, you know, Aaron Murray's new girlfriend is super hot. And like the the, the, the website traffic almost shut down the servers, right? So well, I'm yeah. literally like a couple of hours apart. We have good looking girl of a girlfriend of a, a quarterback and we have, you know, cancer patient making a pick. People would say they want the cancer patient story, but it's like you can peel back their brain and the good looking girl, like people like broke their cell, you know, their screens on their phones to immediately <laughs> click through on it. And we just had another story like that recently uh, because SI had a 56 year old swimsuit model and people are like, you know, I don't care about that and you know meanwhile the servers are you know hot lava uh because people can't click on that enough it was our most read story last week and red is in quotation marks but uh let's go back to uh let's go back to sports for a minute because you talked about being a big sports fan growing up for me i have talked with my audience about the missouri race protest uh which i believe happened back in 2016 if i'm not mistaken 2015 2015, whatever that year was yeah as for me my red pill moment as a member of the sports media because that was in my wheelhouse southeastern conference college football which is what i made my my living on and i actually dove into that story and i saw the way that it was covered by the media and i'm like man there is nothing that is actually here and from that moment I legitimately questioned everything in an aggressive way in the sports media in a way that I never had before. Was there a story for you in sports? And to the extent that I have uh, evolved in any way in the way that I write and talk about sports, for me, that story was a transformative moment. I'd always been skeptical. I'd always been, uh, you know, maybe more likely to adopt a devil's advocate perspective. Maybe that's the lawyer in me, whatever it is. But that for me was a uh, was a, a life sort of altering moment in the way that I consume news in the world of sports. Was there one for you in the world of sports where you said, my God, sports has become as political and as unclear and as agenda-driven as the rest of politics news? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there have been hints of it for a long time. So I'm, I'm, my parents gave me a Sports Illustrated subscription for my birthday when I was probably 13. Yeah. And for, I would say, 15 years, I was a subscriber to Sports Illustrated, and I wasn't just a subscriber. I would, like, sit there on Friday night to see how it started, and I'd read the thing cover to cover, like, every single week. I didn't care if I liked the columns. I didn't care if, it, if I was interested in the sport. I would literally sit there and just read the whole thing cover to cover. And it was kind of my, my weekly break. Well, I, I remember over time as Sports Illustrated started covering more and more politics where suddenly there was like a cover story on how global warming is going to affect baseball and how the Miami Marlins were going to be playing from 30 feet underwater and this kind of stuff. And I remember thinking, okay, I, I don't think that's true, but all right. <laughs> right. The, 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 kind of, the kind of breaking point for me came when they featured Caitlyn Jenner on the cover of the magazine, and they made a big deal out of this. Caitlyn, and and I, I just remember thinking to myself, okay, Caitlyn Jenner's an adult. 
he can, I, I, I use people's biological pronouns. He can, he can do what he wants. I mean, if, if he thinks that he is a woman, then that's fine. If he wants to call himself Caitlin, that's fine. I don't really care. But what in the F does this have to do with sports? Caitlin, Bruce Jenner has not been relevant in the American sports scene since before I was born. What are, like, why is this on the cover of a magazine? I do, I do not understand why this is happening. And that's when I realized that this had become just the thing. The thing was that the only stories that mattered were sports stories that it's a particular narrative. And that had been true for, for that. I remember this is true when, um, it was, um, uh, what, what was the name of, uh, John Amici? Was it, I think, was the, the, the gay basketball player from the Orlando, uh, from the That's Orlando right. Magic? Yes. Uh, it was, put, was put on the cover of Sports Illustrated. I remember thinking to myself, there's there are a lot of pretty you know, famous gay people in society. Like, I'm not sure why this is like a huge story. Um, and, but, but it was really the Caitlyn Jenner thing. At least John Amici had been like an active player within the, the recent past. Um, the, the, the Caitlyn Jenner thing was like, okay, because now, now you're trying to promulgate a couple of things. One, you're trying to suggest that if I believe that Bruce Jenner is actually a man or that Caitlyn Jenner is a biological man, that I'm a bigot. And two, you're putting that on the cover of a sports magazine for a guy who's not been relevant or a person who's not been relevant in sports for literally four decades. Like, this, this, is, this clearly has nothing to do with anything. And then it got to the point, like, I, 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 that was when I had already been thinking of it, but that's when I was like, you know what, I don't need Sports Illustrated in my life anymore. And I just canceled it because it was at least half politics at that point. I started looking at the magazine and realizing half of the stuff I was reading was politics. And then I remember watching ESPN. I was, as you say, devoted to Sports Center like, every day. And then at the gym, I'd put on, I'd put on ESPN. And every single story after the Missouri thing was a story of America's evil, racist, evil, racist orientation toward minorities. And I thought, well, hold up a second. Isn't ESPN like a, an entire channel dedicated to athletic prowess, which in, in many sports is heavily dominated by minorities? But apparently America's evil. And, and it got to the point where it's like, okay, I just don't want to watch this anymore. The only thing that I want to watch is the actual game. And you can see how in sports, the entire narrative moved from the fringes into the actual sport. And that's, that's kind of the story of the last five years. It went from Okay, you know, we have character studies of various players in Sports Illustrated for years. This person might not be that relevant, but, but it's kind of an interesting character study. And even there, you're like, okay, fine. Then it got, and now it's to the point where we're going to actually put the politics on the field. Right? That, that was, that's what's happened over the last three, four years. It was the politics of the players is interesting, but separate from what happens on the field. So you could watch a broadcast and go the entire broadcast without hearing the politics. And now it's, no, we're going to put it on the sideline. And then right away, even a few years ago with Kaepernick, it was on the sideline. And then it moved to, okay, it's going to be during, and it's going to move to before the game with the hands-up, don't shoot stuff with the St. Louis Rams, the same year. And then it was going to be, okay, now it's going to be in the game itself. Now when I turn on the NBA, I have to watch Black Lives Matter throw up an alley to defund the police. And I'm out, man. Like, I, I, I can't do that. Like, I'm happy to watch the basketball, but if you're going to spoon-feed me a particular brand of politics while I do it, like, I just wonder if you're on the left, and I'm running a sports league. Do you really want to see pro-life throw up a throw up an alley oop to lower my taxes? Like, is that something that you're up for? Are you up for me? Are you up for watching a league where quarterback biological women exist goes back to throw a, a hail mary to to strengthen our military funding? Like, what, what what are we talking about here? This has nothing to do with anything. It is amazing to think about, and 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 really, in the last ten days or so. I think people have started to recognize the inherent hypocrisy here. And uh, I thought the Adrian Wojnarowski response of just F.U. immediately sent to Missouri Senator Josh Hawley 
when he asked about the inherent contradictions in the NBA being willing to take billions of dollars from a Chinese communist government, which if you truly want to analogize a global power to Nazi era, which is always a freighted, difficult, historical uh, conversation to have, but the Chinese would be it, right? I mean, if you think about what they are doing, it most clearly, I would argue, of any country in the world right now, I'm curious if you would agree, analogizes to Nazi Germany, yet NBA is willing to take billions of dollars from communist China, which has got concentration camps and is taking over land and is taking away rights, literally pulling books out of libraries, and yet they're going to lecture us about American politics. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, again, it's it's pretty amazing to hear from the NBA, which is heavily black lead because so many talented players are black saying that Americans are deeply and endemically racist. And we're all tuning in to watch the NBA, specifically because we just want to see athletic prowess, right? There was an amazing exchange today between Senator Ted Cruz and Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, where Cuban was saying something nasty to Cruz, and Cruz came back and he was like, you know, you're very brave on a lot of these issues, but I'm just wondering, do you have the guts to just tweet, like, free Hong Kong or anything about what's going on in China right now? And immediately Cuban tweets back, well, you know, what happens internally in different countries is, is their own business, and also Black Lives Matter. It's like, okay, so you're just misdirecting now. <laughs> the reality is that, you know, it, we, there's a lot to be said about police brutality in this country, but the threat to black Americans in this country is nowhere on the order of what's happening to the Chinese Uyghurs at the hands of the Chinese government. But one, you're willing to say something on because it is cost-free to you. Not only is it cost-free, because it actually plays into a certain marketing perspective that you want to have with regard to the NBA, and the other one, you literally will not even say. That, I mean, there is tape that has emerged of, of the Uyghurs being loaded after having their head shaved yes. onto trains to go to concentration camps where they will be sterilized. And Mark Cuban's like, oh, it's an internal political issue. Okay, yeah, sure. I, I, I totally believe your virtue signaling about the cruelties of America and our brutal human rights violations. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking to Ben Shapiro, the new book, by the way, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps is a good read. I'm working on it right now. Uh, encourage you to follow him on Twitter as well, at Ben Shapiro. Um, you, you were, and by the way, this is the Wins and Losses podcast. I'm Clay Travis. And uh, it, it also ties in with Jamel Hill. We're talking on Monday afternoon. Yesterday afternoon, evening, Jamel Hill tweeted out that if you vote for Donald Trump, you are a racist uh, and you'll appreciate this. I had uh, our crew at OutKick reach out to ESPN because they now have hired Jamel Hill to be a producer of a Colin Kaepernick documentary, which is the very essence of propaganda, right? We know already what they are going to allow him to say and what that story will be that will be told, but they're literally giving millions of dollars to Kaepernick and Jamel Hill. And so we said, uh, you know, I had him phrase it. I said, do you basically agree uh, that Jamel Hill's position of everyone who votes for Donald Trump is racist. ESPN's response was no comment. So they're not even willing to say there are some people in America who might be voting for Donald Trump that are not racist. I mean, including her mom, right? You guys also yes. dug up oh, it's amazing. how her yes. mom voted for Trump. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is just absolutely spectacular. Yeah, I mean, they, first of all, I'm not sure why Jamel Hill is suddenly an expert on American policing. Like I just, yes. I just think there's there's not a ton of crossover here between like my my understanding, which maybe maybe she is, and I don't know it. My understanding is that she made her kind of fame and fortune doing sports, yes. not doing not doing the politics specifically. Now, listen, she's entitled to her opinion. I'm not one of these shut up and sing kind of people. Like I think that you should be able to speak on whatever you want to speak about. But I'm not sure why her opinion carries so much weight on on these matters when she has provided little to no statistical evidence in many of the contentions that she is making and it seems that she's brought on tv merely to castigate large crowds of people she doesn't know is racist i mean she did the same thing a couple of weeks ago after the bubble wallace non-news where she suggested that everybody who watched nascar was a confederate flag waving racist i mean it's just it, like this is, this is her shtick and it's, it's a pretty incredible shtick by the way what a great country this is right i mean it really is a phenomenal country where you can be uh, a quarterback who leads your team to the Super Bowl, and then the next season, everybody figures you, figures you out that you can't make a secondary read. And you kneel, and you can make millions of dollars off of that while declaring that the country hates you and is racist. Like, that's an unbelievable scam. It's fan-frickin-tastic. This is it, just it. Like, it, anyone it, can make a fortune here, no matter, how, no matter what you do, but particularly if you just crap all over the system that is paying you tons of money. There's no other country in the world that I can think of where somebody could just say the country is fundamentally racist, it's an awful place, and make more money doing that than they would to actually be a pro athlete. I got a couple of facts for you that I think you're going to enjoy and also want your opinion. Uh, a few weeks ago, ESPN decided to give over their programming for the evening 
to social justice warrior programming. It was like ESPN woke center in the extreme, okay? Uh, it was the lowest rated primetime programming in 25 years and probably longer. Literally, literally the audience is telling ESPN, we don't want this. We do not have any interest in you guys deciding to be, I think as you initially coined, MSESPN, this, uh, the worldwide leader in sports and left-wing politics. Why do you think in a market-based economy, markets responding as they are is still leading ESPN down this pathway of woke center destruction when all the evidence is telling them, uh, hey, your fans, your audience don't want this? Well, I actually did a a bit of a statistical study on this a few years ago to look at the percentage of coverage that was being devoted by sports on ESPN. And they heavy, heavily disproportionately focus on the NFL and the NBA, much less on the NLB, almost nothing on the NHL. Yeah. Um, and what that says to me is that ESPN is specifically catering to particular racial demographics that they think are going to spend more money with their advertisers, which makes perfect sense, right? On, if, you're, if you're ESPN and you get a lot of money from Nike for advertising, and people who are disproportionately likely to buy Nike are young black males, and young black males want companies that cater to that particular brand of politics, then it all sort of crosses over, right? There's a reason that Nike decided to hire Kaepernick, and it's not because Nike suddenly decided to get woke. It's because they wanted to make more money. So capitalism always wins until it doesn't, right? I mean, this is sort of, in the short term, capitalism always wins. ESPN can afford a bad night of programming in order to signal to their to their constituency that we are on your side when it comes to politics, and thus your brand loyalty will be that much higher. But they are and they are betting that a huge percentage of the population just won't turn out ESPN. And I don't think that's right. I think that there are a lot of people who did this with the NFL with the kneeling stuff. I did it with ESPN. I used to watch ESPN regularly. I haven't watched ESPN in years. Uh, I think ESPN is also recognizing a simple truth, which is that so many people are cutting the cord at this point that they have to double down on the audiences they do have. Um, because if you are, if you, if you're younger, chances are pretty good that you're just going to go online for your, for your sports anyway. Um, or you're going to buy, like for me, I have an MLB TV subscription, right? Because all I care about is baseball. So the, the, the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the fact that ESPN decided to program this direction, there, there's some actual market reasons that make some sense here, but I think that that's, that's the part of this that's so hilarious is all the woke scolds who are out there cheering ESPN, cheering Disney, cheering all of these major corporations whose guts they hate because suddenly they think that the corporations have turned woke, when in reality the corporations are just making a quick buck off of them. Do you think that athletes understand where the money from their salaries come from? Because I keep circling back around to this being the essential major issue out there, which is that the athletes themselves, they don't understand where the money's coming from anymore. You know, they look at their social media feeds, they pull up Instagram, they pull up Twitter, they see what gets likes, they're busy playing sports otherwise, and it's as if they have forgotten who actually pays their salaries, which are... The people who are willing to buy courtside seats in the NBA, which, by the way, are really, really expensive. The people who are buying luxury suites, a huge percentage of them would not vote in the same way that the athlete would. Is that just a fundamental disconnect in terms of not understanding the business that they're in? I mean, I think that's right. I think the problem is that they don't get directly paid by the fans. If they got directly paid by the fans, then they would actually be then they would actually have to cater to the fan base. But they're paid by the owners because the owners are the ones who actually end up reaping the the benefit. So they look at the owners and they're like, oh, you owners, you're shutting me down. You're stopping me from speaking my mind. And it's all because you're an old white guy. And the old white guy's like, wait a second, I hired you and I'm happy to have you on the team. But, you know, I can only pay you the money that's coming in. And they look at the old white guy who's worth a lot of money and they said, yeah, but you're worth billions of dollars. And all you have to do is dip into your Scrooge McDuck piggy bank and you can just so that you swim around in every night and pay me a little extra money. And he won't do that because of woke reasons. 
And listen, if, if, the, if people were actually subjected to the market decisions they make directly, they'd make very, very different decisions. Like, at my company, everybody sort of knows what, where, the, where the money comes from, right? It comes from our subscribers. It comes from the advertisers. But athletes are not trained to think like that. That's, that's not how they think. And frankly, it, they shouldn't have to think like that because it used to be that your literal job was just to go and play ball. Right, your, your job was not to, to be a social justice warrior, but then it became that the media created all of these advertising incentives to be bigger than your actual athletic profile would allow. It used to be that if you got a big advertising contract, the way you got a big advertising contract was you were good at the sport that you played. Now the That's way right. you get a big advertising contract is you're mediocre to decent at the sport that you play, but you say a couple of super woke things and you go in social justice rally. I mean, my, my guess is that Dwayne Wade, who was an amazing player in his prime, is probably getting just as many advertising contracts or close to it now for being a social justice warrior as he was when he was in his prime with the Heat. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals, Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape. You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast and this season takes it to a whole new level old school legends modern power players redemption seekers and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars anyone can win relationships matter and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion listen to mtv's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts uh, we're talking to Ben Shapiro. I'm Clay Travis, the Wins and Losses podcast. Where You talked about about five or six years ago, you noticed this stark evolution. I agree with you on the timing. Uh, and where does it go from here? 
do fans ultimately, the markets ultimately react and, and athletes end up recognizing, wait a minute, this might not be best business or are we past the point if we cross the Rubicon, so to speak, and there's no way to go back? I think we've crossed the Rubicon at this point. And I think that, you know, as you know, we both trended on Twitter for saying exactly this. But I think oh, it's amazing. there will come up. Uh, it's unbelievable. But there, there, there will come a point here where so many people have tuned out. Like, I still love the sport of basketball. I just don't want to be lectured to about politics with which I disagree. So there will come a point where if the leagues don't figure out that people like the sport, but they don't like the politics, where people will just form alternative leagues where they ban the politics. I mean, David Stern used to recognize this, right? I mean, he stopped, uh, he stopped uh, the, the player on the Nuggets from, from, from uh, sitting for the National Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf, yeah. Exactly. I mean, like, this, is, this, this used to be kind of well understood. And then they forgot about it because now they're sort of micro-targeting audiences as opposed to broadcasting. It's sort of the difference that happened in, in television when cable began. Instead of broadcasting, you narrowcast it. And so sports are now narrowcasting. Well, somebody's going to come along and eat their lunch by, by broadcasting and saying, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to hire the five best players. And the, and the rule is going to be that there just is no politics on the field. And we'll shell out a few bucks to get, I mean, the AI, uh, there's one point where the USFL basically tried this with Steve Young. They just did it wrong. But, the, but the, the notion that you could start a rival sports league by signing some of the best players for a few million bucks and draw the eyeballs there and then not insult the viewers, I mean, I think that there's a lot of money to be made there. So it, it's ugly for the country because I don't think that you should have to have two separate sports leagues, one for non-politics and one for politics, or one for right-wing politics and one for left-wing politics. Like, it kills the water cooler. Because if we're watching separate sports games, then what exactly do we talk about when we disagree on everything else? But it seems like that's inexorably the direction in which we're moving. Talking to Ben Shapiro, uh, whose new book is How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben Shapiro. Uh, when you look at, uh, at that sort of eventual reality, a large part of it, I would argue, is being driven by social media. I think social media has been good for certainly people like you and me because it's allowed us to broaden our audience. But for the nation as a whole, how destructive do you believe social media has been and how much of our current chaotic situation is directly connected to the evolution and creation of social media? Uh, social media has been really destructive in, in that it got rid of normal human relationships. I mean, the, the, the notion was that you could be friends with people across the aisle, but now because you get retweets and likes for, for being a jackass, basically, you know, what, what I've said about Twitter is that Twitter is a place to dunk and be dunked upon. And so if you're not dunking or being dunked upon, you're basically wasting your time, right? You're shooting 12-foot jumpers, mid-range jumpers. And nobody, <laughs> nobody gets rich shooting 12-foot yeah. mid-range jumpers, right? Take the three or, or dunk. And so that's, that's really what, what Twitter is all about. So it incentivizes extreme rhetoric. It incentivizes people to be jerks. And it, it gives you all sorts of, of credit for saying the thing that is unsayable, except that the most sayable things on Twitter are the unsayable things, right? If you're truly unsayable, you can't say it. So it's, it's created all sorts of weird incentive structures. Now, listen, I'm real grateful, that, as you say, that social media is there because it allows alternative points of view to, to get out there. But I will say that the, it, one of the things that it's also done, uh, in, in terms of a gener, uh, general sports level, is it's made people have expectations of athletes they never would have had before. So what's happened in the, in the athletic world is basically what happened in Hollywood in the 1960s and 70s. For a long time, there's a studio system in Hollywood that basically said, our stars are our stars, their private lives are off limits, they are in the movies. We create these images for them, and those are the glitzy, glamorous, uh, glamorous images. That's why the Oscars used to get big ratings, because that was the only time you saw the stars when they weren't actually on your, on your film screen. And then in the 60s and 70s, they started to do politics. They became everyday kind of players in politics, and they were in your newspaper, and they were on TV, and it radically changed the way that Americans think about politics and, and about Hollywood. Now you're seeing the same thing happen in sports. It used to be the only time you saw Michael Jordan is when he was on the field, or when, when he was on the court, rather. 
the only time you saw Drew Brees is when he was on the field. Well, social media has democratized the ability to get out a message that you want to promulgate. So now it's turned into, well, you're not messaging strongly enough. Right now there's an expectation that, that athletes are going to be political, and if they are not political, then it's not that they're being smart. The athletes are not speaking out loudly enough. And this is how you see all of the bullying that takes place of, of people who haven't put up the check mark, haven't put up the blue square have, or the black square, people who haven't messaged in a way that we want. And so we're now going to bully them into it. Like 30 years ago, that makes no sense because none of the athletes were saying any of this stuff. Now the expectation is that you have to say this stuff. And if you don't say this stuff, then simply by process of, process of elimination and expectation, we know that you're not truly woke. What's the thing that had the last couple of questions for you? Uh, you mentioned the fact that we were trending. I went on your show. We talked about, I don't even remember what the latest controversy was, but I was talking about the latest sports controversy with you. Um, I, you know, I get in bed, I'm about to go to sleep and I, uh, and I happen to get some text. Hey, you're trending. And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm trending for. Right. And you say and do a lot of things every day now too. And sometimes you'll find out you're trending for something that you might say 20 times a day. And for some reason, somebody clipped it and it went up. What's the funniest or most uh, unbelievable thing that you have found yourself trending for? Is there one that stands out? Well, that one actually was pretty good because that one, yeah. I literally, like, we were trending because I think the contention I was making is I don't like my sports reporting politics. That was yes. pretty much the entire thing. Yeah. And we trended for that, and I thought, that's a 95% proposition in the United States. Yes. Like, I, I don't think that there, there are, like, that many people who are like, I desperately need my basketball with a side of, of commentary on the racial situation in America. Um, but the, the, that one was pretty ridiculous. Um, there, there have been a few. I mean, there, there's, the, I think I trended on Saturday uh, because I put up a map of masking in the United States alongside a map of the, the caseload uh, in different places of the United States. And I said, there's a pattern here. And then my follow-up tweet was, the pattern here is that where there's a high caseload, people are putting on masks because people act rationally. And that yes. trended because people decided to take the first tweet out of context and suggest that I was saying masks don't work, which I explicitly said is not what the case in the second tweet. Right? And so they waited like six hours. Both tweets were already up, and then they trended it. So that, that one was pretty good. Um, there have been just a bunch lately. There's one on, on COVID where I pointed out that the people who are dying of COVID are disproportionately elderly. And that means yes. that there's a different public policy consideration than if a bunch of 30 or 20 year olds were dying. And people are like, are you saying that you want to kill grandma? I'm like, no, <laughs> damn it. Of course I'm not saying that. The hell's wrong with you people? But that, again, tw- Twitter it's the dumbest place on earth. And I just figure I'm going to trend once every two weeks, no matter what. And the good news is that after you've trended, there's basically like a two week grace period, it feels like, where <laughs> Twitter has some sort of algorithm where they don't let you trend for a couple of weeks. So they trended me on Saturday, so I can sleep easy for a couple of weeks. Do you enjoy being in the fight every day? Uh, I do. I, I, I like kind of throwing punches. I like being in the mud, the muck, whatever you want to call it, um, because I'm a big First Amendment guy. And I also feel like if there weren't people making the arguments that I'm making, almost no one in all of sports media would be making them, which is, it blows my mind. But Jason Whitlock and I talk about this a lot in relation to OutKick. If we didn't exist... There's literally no one out there who would be making the arguments, which I believe are correct arguments, by the way. But it's not even that, uh, you know, that other people would be fighting these battles. It's like it would just be a totally abandoned battlefield. There would be no one arguing what we are arguing. It blows my mind sometimes. And I imagine for you, you feel the same way in the world of politics. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I, I will say that I think that the world of politics is more wearying than the world of sports because I think that. You know, at least every so often you get to take a break and talk about fun stuff. At yes. least you, you at least occasionally get to talk about the game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for me. yeah, it's a good point. These days, but, but soon enough. Um, but, but for me, because it's all politics all the time, uh, it definitely gets tiresome at some points when you're thinking, like, why is this even controversial? Why is this even remotely controversial? Like, I do, I, I honestly, God, do not understand 
why COVID policy is particularly controversial. Like, nobody I agree. has a great answer to this. Everybody, you know, out of an abundance of caution, wear, wear a mask. The, the, we can't stay locked in our homes forever. And we'd like to make it safe for our kids to go to schools. And by and large, kids are not being disproportional, are not being affected, like, nearly at all by this thing. Like, these are all, I feel like they should be 100% propositions. And somehow, everything turns into rock'em, sock'em robots. So at a certain point, like, when it's an important issue, I love the fight, right? When it's, when it's the lack of due process in the Kavanaugh hearings, when it's the, when it's, you know, the, the 1619 Project bullcrap that's being promulgated online. Like, that's, not, that's times when I feel like the fight's important. What's really tiring is when it's a minor stupid issue and it becomes the, the issue of the day, and suddenly I'm forced to talk about whether we ought to have, you know, whether mandatory masking is going to solve COVID and whether Donald Trump is a, is a very, very bad orange man for his latest dumb tweet, when we all know it's just a stupid tweet that he sends every five seconds. He's Ben Shapiro. I'm Clay Travis. It's the Wins and Losses podcast. Check out the book, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps. Follow Ben at Ben Shapiro on Twitter and appreciate all of your time. Go check out the other Wins and Losses uh, episodes that we have. I think you'll enjoy them. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Clay. That is the latest. We're going to try to get more and more of these done long-form conversations. Let me know who you'd like to hear from. Go rate us. Give us five stars, and we'll be back with another Wins and Losses soon. In the meantime, go subscribe to the Outkick the Coverage podcast as well as Outkick the Show. And as always, check out Outkick.com for the latest. This has been Wins and Losses with Clay Travis and Ben Shapiro. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at FoxSportsRadio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here and this season takes it to a whole new level old school legends modern power players and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast listen to mtv's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts